Father, we thank You again for all that You have given to us, all that You have done for us. We thank You for Your deep, deep love, a love that caused You to choose us and predestine us from eternity to be sons through Jesus Christ to Yourself, the love that sent Your Son into the world that He might bear the wrath that we deserve, the love that raised Him from the dead and seated Him at Your right hand as Lord of lords and King of kings, where He now in love makes intercession for us. The very love that led the Holy Spirit to come effectually into our hearts, opening our blinded eyes to the beauty and majesty and brilliance of Jesus. The very love that drew us to Him in faith and sanctifies us in grace and preserves us until the end and will bring us one day to everlasting glory. We are so thankful for Your love. Indeed, You've demonstrated Your love to us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. You've demonstrated Your love in the cross. And we are so thankful and are ever grateful for all that You are to us, all that You've done for us. And we pray that You would help us to respond to these wonderful truths and obedience. Help us in the words of Ephesians 6 to in Ephesians 5, going back to chapter 5, to be Spirit-filled Christians who live under the influence and power and control of the Holy Spirit and the Word of God, who are husbands that love their wives and wives that submit to their husbands and children that obey their parents because it is right, because it pleases God, because it commends the Gospel. That we would be parents that would not exasperate our children, would not provoke them to anger, but would instead bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord, and that we would be men and women who are under authority and would submit to the authority that you've placed over us, whether it's authority in the workplace, authority in the home, authority from government, that we would submit to authority until that authority, as we know, contradicts God's Word, God's law, and then we obey God instead of men. But help us to be obedient, law-abiding citizens, people who seek to live quiet and tranquil lives in the world and to adorn the doctrine of God our Savior in every respect, and a people who are bold and powerfully proclaiming the truth for Your glory. Lord, use us in that way. Thank You for these dear saints that have gathered together to worship You this morning. It's such a joy to lead them in this worship. And now as we come to the most important part of our worship, when we study the Word of God, we pray for help and assistance from on high, We pray for wisdom and knowledge and understanding and we pray that these truths would radically change our hearts, our minds, and our lives for the praise of Your glory, we pray. Amen. All right, if you will, take your Bible and turn with me again to Titus chapter 1. Titus 1. We are still working our way through the introduction to the book, the preface, Paul's opening greeting, which is comprised of four verses and one long sentence in the Greek text. That's Titus chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. Paul wrote this pastoral epistle from Nicopolis, somewhere in southern Greece, to Titus, who was ministering on the island of Crete at the time. And he wrote the letter to remind Titus of how to build healthy, strong, effective evangelistic local churches. This is what we might refer to as a church planning manual. A manual on how to plant and build strong, healthy, 
local churches for the glory of God. And he begins this very letter at the very outset with this opening salutation filled with rich theological and practical truths that teach us how to be effective in ministry. He's about to teach us about effective ministry. Let me read the verses to you once again. Titus chapter 1, starting in verse 1. Paul, a bondservant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the faith of those chosen of God and the knowledge of the truth which is according to godliness, in the hope of eternal life, which God, who cannot lie, promised long ages ago, but at the proper time manifested even His Word in the proclamation with which I was entrusted according to the commandment of God our Savior. To Titus, my true child in a common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. As I've told you before, this is Paul's opening salutation, his opening greeting, his introduction. And structurally, it's made up of three parts. There's the author, there's the recipient, and there's the benediction. He begins this letter at the very outset by describing his own ministry to Titus. Describing his own priorities and commitments in the ministry. And in that sense, these become examples, not only for Titus, but for all believers of all time, even us upon whom the ends of the ages have come. As I told you last week, all believers are called to ministry. All believers are called to ministry. All Christians are called to service. Every child of God is in the Lord's army. This is a logical deduction to the priesthood of all believers. Every member ministry. We are all priests before God. We are servants before Him. We are His ministers. Just to kind of prove this, let me read a couple of passages to you that confirm that truth. I read Ephesians chapter 4, verses 11 and 12 to you last time. Ephesians 4, 11 and 12. There Paul wrote, And He, that is Christ, gave some as apostles, and some as prophets, and some as evangelists, and some as pastors and teachers. And why did He give these gifted men to the church? Verse 12 answers, For the equipping of the saints for the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ. Christ gives leaders to the church, including pastors, to equip the whole church for ministry. All believers for service. And this is to the building up of the body of Christ. This is how the church grows. The church is built up spiritually and numerically as every member utilizes his gifts and serves one another as every believer engages in ministry. Let me give you another one. Listen to what 1 Peter 2, verses 4-6 through says. It's 1 Peter 2, 4-6. through And coming to Him, that is Christ, as to a living stone, which has been rejected by men, but is choice and precious in the sight of God, you also as living stones are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood. There it is. For a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. If you have come to Christ, you are one little stone, 
that makes up a larger stack of stones, the church, the building of God, and collectively we constitute a holy priesthood. We are priests. And as such, we offer sacrifices to God. That's what priests do, don't they? Read the Old Testament. The priests were never sitting, always standing, always offering sacrifices. That's what they do. And one sacrifice that we offer as priests is that of ministry, service. Verse 9 of the same chapter, that is 1 Peter 2, goes on to say, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. We are a holy priesthood, and therefore we are to proclaim His excellencies. We are saved to serve, saved to proclaim, redeemed to minister. (coughs) Revelation chapter 1 verse 5 speaks of Jesus who loves us and freed us from our sins by His blood. Verse 6 then adds, And He has made us to be a kingdom, priests to His God and Father. We are priests. In 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 10, Peter again writes, As each one has received a special gift, employ it in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. We have all received special gifts, that is, spiritual gifts. And we are to use those gifts in service of one another, in ministry. We are servants. Romans chapter 12, verse 11 exhorts us, to not lag behind in diligence, but to be fervent in spirit, serving the Lord. We are servants of one another. We are servants of God. We are priests. Therefore, we are ministers. So all believers then are called to ministry. And as I've said before, we should all long to be faithful and effective in our ministry. That's what we want, isn't it? None of us want to go stand before the Lord in judgment and hear anything other than well done and good good and faithful servant. None of us want to leave this world without our lives counting for God's glory and for eternity. But what is it that makes for effective ministry? What does an effective minister prioritize? What are his commitments? Well, Paul is going to answer that for us in this passage. In this passage, as Paul outlines his own priorities in the ministry, They become our priorities. This passage teaches us how to be a faithful servant of our Lord. There are here six priorities of an effective minister. We've already looked at the first three of them. We're going to look at the fourth one this morning, and Lord willing, we'll look at the final two next time. But quickly, just by way of review, the first priority of an effective minister that we saw a couple of weeks ago was the right master. The right master. An effective minister is committed to the right master. Verse 1. Paul, a bond servant of God. Paul begins the letter at the very outset affirming his humble position as a slave, as a doulos, as one owned by another, one under complete authority. He saw himself 
And the whole of his life is one under the mastery of God. One under the lordship of Jesus Christ. And in the same way, we must also see ourselves as God's slaves. He is kudios, we are doulos. He is lord, we are slave. He is master, we are servants. We belong to Him. We must be sold out for Him. No one can be an effective minister who isn't totally consecrated to God. That's the starting point. The right master. But secondly, the second priority of an effective minister, the right ministry. The right ministry. Verse 1 again. Paul, a bondservant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ. Not only was Paul a humble slave, he was an authoritative apostle. One who spoke on his, on Christ's behalf. One who ministered with divine delegated authority. That was his ministry, and that was the ministry to which he was called by God, and the ministry to which he was committed. And in the same way, any effective minister knows the ministry that God has for him. Any effective minister is committed to being a messenger of Christ, a witness for Christ, and is committed to using his spiritual gifts in service of Him. But that then leads to a question. What is the purpose of our ministry? What are the goals of our ministry? What is, what is our mission? Well, that's what we considered last week, the right mission. Number three, the right mission. Verse 1 again. You think, how can you get so much out of one verse, huh? One verse, and that's just one part of one, of one long sentence. Paul is rich, isn't he? Verse 1, Paul, a bondservant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the faith of those chosen of God and the knowledge of the truth which is according to godliness. Paul's purpose in the ministry was twofold. The salvation of the lost, the sanctification of the saved. To bring unbelievers to Christ and to bring believers to greater Christ-likeness. The salvation of the elect and the spiritual growth of believers. His desire was not simply to make converts, but to make disciples. His mission was evangelization and edification. Salvation and sanctification. And that's our mission as well. That's the mission of every believer. It's the mission of every church. We labor to see unbelievers come to Christ and to see believers reflect more of Christ. That is the right mission. Why should you get up on Sunday morning and come to church? Why... Should you be willing to meet with other believers for study? Why should you pray for the saints? Why should you share your faith with those who are going to think you're a fool? You do it as a slave of God with the right ministry and the right mission to bring people to salvation and sanctification. That's the goal. And the amazing thing is that God will use ordinary people like you and me to advance His kingdom in the world. That's amazing, isn't it? We're not talking about the kingdom of some pe- uh, human king, who in re- reality is nothing more than a peasant in God's sight. We're talking about the kingdom of God. And He will use you, if you're faithful, submitting to the right master, with the right ministry, and the right mission. Now all of that brings us to the fourth priority of an effective minister. And this is where we're going to camp out this morning. And that is the right message. The right message. 
If you're going to be an effective minister, not only do you need the right mission, you need the right message by which to accomplish that mission. What message is that? What message is it that saves and sanctifies? Verses 2 and 3 provide the answer. Now we're making some progress, huh? Look at verse 2. In the hope of eternal life, which God who cannot lie promised long ages ago, but at the proper time manifested even His Word. Stop there. Paul's message, which is referred to as the knowledge of the truth in verse 1, the message that saves and sanctifies, consists in the hope of eternal life. Or as he says in verse 3, even His Word. Paul's message was the Gospel of Christ. The covenant of grace. The Word of God. The right message centers on or in the hope of eternal life. The word in here translates the Greek preposition epi, and it could be translated as on or up on. It can carry the idea of on the basis of. What is Paul saying here? Paul is saying the knowledge of the truth that saves and sanctifies, the message that leads to salvation and godliness, is based upon the hope of eternal life. It centers on the message of salvation. That was Paul's message. The Gospel. The Gospel is the message that brings unbelievers to salvation and believers to sanctification. That's the message. And any effective minister ministry is based upon that message. It's not based upon social justice. It's not based upon primarily political activism. It's based upon the Gospel of Jesus Christ. What do you get when, with political activism? What do you get with social justice? What do you get with all of these things? You get temporal change. You get behavioral modification. You clean up the outside, but the inside, to quote Jesus, is full of dead men's bones. It's like washing the outside of the cup and not the inside of the cup. That would be pretty stupid, wouldn't it? That's the equivalent of all of these other means of trying to advance God's kingdom or trying to change the world, quote-unquote, in reality, the message that changes the heart and therefore changes the life and therefore changes the culture and therefore changes the eternal destiny is the Gospel of Jesus Christ. So if you really want to change the world, if you really want, to, really want your life to count, you must be committed to proclaiming the Gospel. The message that centers on the hope of eternal life. As believers, we have hope. The word hope, by the way, does not refer to wishful thinking. It's not like saying, I hope I win the lottery or I hope my team wins the Super Bowl. Things that we would like to see happen, but in all likelihood we know probably will not, especially if you're a Tennessee Vols fan. We understand that those things just won't happen. That's not what biblical hope is. That's not what we're talking about. Biblical hope is certainty. Certainty. The Greek word elpis means expectation, trust, confidence. It is a confident longing for and expectation of that which is promised, that which is certain. 
that which is guaranteed. The word, by the way, could also be used objectively to refer to the object of our hope, what we hope in, what we hope for, which is here said to be eternal life. That's our hope. Eternal life, as we've noted before, refers more to a quality of life than a quantity of life. It's more of a kind of life than the duration of life. It's not merely to live on consciously forever. The wicked will live on consciously forever in hell, but they don't have eternal life. This hope of eternal life must then be more than living on consciously. It's much more than that. In fact, in one sense, it begins at the very moment of conversion. It is the life of God within the soul. John 17.3, Jesus said, This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you've sent. Eternal life is communion with God. Fellowship with the Lord. It is to be in a saving relationship with God through Jesus Christ. It is to possess the life of God, the nature of God, the seed of God, as 1 John chapter 3 taught us. And it begins at the very moment of salvation, the very moment you come to know Christ. However, eternal life could also refer to the fullness of our salvation. That which is yet future. That which we've yet to receive. You see, in one sense, as believers, we already possess eternal life. Yet we do not possess it in its fullness. The fullness of eternal life refers to the resurrection when we are raised with new bodies, glorified bodies, never to, be, never to sin again, never to be sick again, never to feel pain again, never to die again, when we're raised and conformed to the body of His glory and we reign with Him forever in the new heavens and the new earth. That is the fullness of salvation. And that is what Paul is stressing here. <clears throat> and we know that because he calls it the hope of eternal life. The hope of eternal life. In Romans chapter 8, verse 24, Paul asks, Who hopes for what he already sees? The answer is no one. Right? I don't hope for a wife. I have a wife. I don't hope for a car. I have a car. Children don't hope for their Christmas presents after they open the presents. They do it before they open the presents. We don't hope for something we already have. We hope for what we have yet to receive. As Paul says in Romans chapter 8, verse 25, But if we hope for what we do not see, with perseverance we wait eagerly for it. So eternal life in this sense is something we do not yet have. Something we have not yet fully received. Something we eagerly wait for. It is our hope. Titus speaks of this hope at least two other times in this letter. In chapter 3, verse 7, he says that being justified by His grace, we have been made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. We are heirs. Heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. And as such, we will receive eternal life. 
But when will we receive this eternal life? When will this hope become reality? Well, in Titus 2.13, you can turn there a page to the right. Titus 2.13, he tells us, there he refers to our hope as the blessed hope. Our blessed hope. Listen to what he says starting in verse 12. He says that as we seek to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age, we do it looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Christ Jesus. Our blessed hope is the second coming, the coming of Christ when He appears, when we see Him as He is, and when we become as He is in the language of 1 John chapter 3. And what does this hope do for us now? We know what it does in the future. Christ comes, we're glorified, we're perfected, we reign forever with Him. But what about now? We live in a microwave culture. We want it now. What are the practical ramifications of this hope now? Paul tells us it instructs us to deny worldly lust. It instructs us to pursue godliness. Just as he says back in chapter 1 again, in verses 1 and 2 of chapter 1, this message of the hope of eternal life is that which is according to godliness, he says. It produces godliness. It is, as John refers to it in 1 John 3, a purifying hope. A purifying hope. 1 John 3, 3 says, everyone who has this hope fixed on Him purifies himself just as He is pure. The hope of eternal life, the message of salvation, the Gospel changes a person who believes it. Any person who really has his hope fixed upon Christ and eternal life is changed. Which means if you say you're a Christian, your life is not changed, then you really don't have your hope set upon Christ. Maybe you've come to Jesus as a get-out-of-hell-free card, but your hope is in reality fixed upon the world. Because all who have this hope fixed on Him are changed. Paul knew that. Paul knew that. He knew that sanctification does not come through seeker-friendly entertainment or over-the-top theatrics or secular psychology or any other worldly means. Instead, it comes through the power of the Gospel. And he was committed to preaching that Gospel, and so must we. We must be committed to the Gospel. God's message. That's why on the Lord's Day, when we meet, we read the Word, we preach the Word, we hear the Word, we sing the Word, we see the Word, because that is the means by which God does His saving and sanctifying work. The Word of God. The hope of eternal life. So this hope of eternal life then is, as Romans 5.2 refers to it, the hope of the glory of God. It is, as Colossians 1.27 refers to it, the hope of glory. The hope that one day, this is good news, friends, one day you will be resurrected. Everyone you've ever loved who was a believer and you lost, they will be resurrected. We grieve not as those without hope. They'll be raised in glory. Bodies perfected. Free from sin forever. 
and you will reign with Christ in eternal life forever. That is your hope. So as you endure this painful life as a pilgrim on the way, as you suffer a broken, painful heart, painful body, painful life, lost of loved ones, you do it, brothers and sisters, with this great hope. The hope of glory. And by the way, it must be mentioned that if you are not a believer, you have no hope. You are, as Paul told the Ephesians, without hope and without God in the world. You're without hope. The only thing an unbeliever has to look forward to in death is everlasting damnation under the wrath of God. The fiery pit of God's judgment. There's no hope in that. So if you're not a Christian, come to the only one who can give you hope. The one who gave Himself for us. The one who bore our sin. And the one who gives life and life eternal to those who believe in Him. So this is our message. It is the hope of eternal life. And this eternal life is so certain and so sure because of the one who promised it. Because of the one who promised it. Eternal life is that, verse 2 adds, which God, who cannot lie, promised long ages ago. Eternal life is so certain because it is promised by God. The very God who cannot lie. Did you know that? There are things that God cannot do. You say, wait a minute, didn't Jesus say there's nothing impossible for God? Yes. Isn't it, don't we sometimes say God can do all things? Yes. Is it a contradiction then to say that God can't do certain things? No. It's perfectly consistent with biblical revelation because God can do all things that are not, number one, logical contradictions, and number two, that do not contradict His own nature. 2 Timothy 2.12 tells us that He cannot deny Himself. He can't deny Himself. That is to say, He cannot deny His own nature. And since His nature is true, since He is the God of truth, He therefore cannot lie. That's good news, isn't it? We've all known people who've broken their promises. We have all broken our promises, haven't we? Being a father is hard because you break more promises than you'd like to admit. The good news is, God will never break His promise. Tis so sweet to trust in Jesus, just to take Him at His word. Numbers 23 19 says, God is not a man that He should lie. God is not a man that He should lie. Nor a son of man that He should repent. Has He said and will He not do it? Or has He spoken and will He not make it good? Will any of His promises be nullified or unfulfilled? No. No. God cannot and will not lie. He will deliver on every one of His promises. They're all trustworthy. Therefore, as Romans chapter 3, verse 4 says, let God be found true, though every man be found a liar. Don't put your hope in political candidates. They're liars. All of them are. Because all men are. Put your hope in the God who cannot lie. This makes the promise of eternal life certain and secure, doesn't it? A promise is only as good as the one who makes it. Turn with me a few pages to the right to Hebrews chapter 6. 
Hebrews chapter 6. After Titus is the short book of Philemon, and then you end up in Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 6. The writer of Hebrews is trying to encourage a group of Jewish Christians to continue in Christ, to continue in the superiority of the new covenant and the certainty of the new covenant. And he does that here in Hebrews chapter 6 by stressing the certainty of the Christian hope. The certainty of the Christian hope. Hebrews 6, starting in verse 11. And we desire that each one of you show the same diligence so as to realize the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you will not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. Those who endure to the end are the ones who inherit the promises, including the promise of eternal life. Now what is it that motivates this endurance? Verse 13. For when God made the promise to Abraham, since he could swear by no one greater, he swore by himself, saying, I will surely bless you, and I will surely multiply you. And so having patiently waited, he obtained the promise. For men swear by one greater than themselves, and with them an oath given as confirmation as an end of every dispute. Verse 17, in the same way God, desiring even more to show to the heirs of the promise the unchangeableness of His purpose, interposed with an oath, so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, by the way, the two unchangeable things are God's purpose and God's oath, both rooted in God's nature. Since God's nature doesn't change, His purpose never changes, and His promises never change. He cannot lie. So that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have taken refuge would have strong encouragement to take hold of the hope set before us. This hope we have as an anchor of the soul, a hope both sure and steadfast, and one which enters within the veil where Jesus has entered as our forerunner for us, having become a high priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. You can go back to Titus chapter 1 now. This hope is so certain because God's purpose never changes. God's nature never changes. And therefore, God never lies. He only speaks the truth. Satan is the father of lies. God is the father of truth. Unlike the Cretans, who in chapter 2, or chapter 1, sorry, verse 12, Paul says they're always liars. Unlike them, God is never a liar. God is always true. He couldn't lie 2,000 years ago when Paul penned these letters, and he can't lie today because he is immutable and unchangeable and perfect. And therefore, our hope of eternal life, which depends upon His promise, is absolutely certain. We're not a group of people who get together and think, oh man, we really hope it all turns out well. We're just believing in this kind of mythical religion. We really just are brainwashed and just hope it turns out well. We're people that need a crutch. Now we're people that know with absolute certainty that our future is glory because of who promised it. By the way, notice when this promise was made. Verse 2, It is the hope of eternal life which God, who cannot lie, promised long ages ago. Three words in the Greek. Pra, meaning before. Chronon, meaning time. And Ionion, meaning eternal. 
Literally then, before times eternal. Before the foundation of the world, as Ephesians 1.4 says. From eternity past. Before the creation of the universe. God made this promise from eternity. Now, if God made the promise of eternal life from eternity, that begs the question, who did He make the promise to? Who did He make the promise to? Was it to you and me? Surely you weren't there before the foundation of the world, were you? Surely you weren't there before the universe came into being. This promise could not have been made directly to us. Who was it made to then? Very simple. The promise was made to Christ and to us in Christ. Got that? The promise was made to Christ and to us in Christ. It was made to Christ covenantally or representatively. This is what theologians often refer to as the covenant of grace. One major component of covenant theology Covenant theology is the framework of understanding the Bible and the flow of redemptive history. It sees the whole of biblical history covenantally. You see, what you need to understand is this. There are two overarching covenants throughout all of history. And all men are under one of those two covenants. The covenant of grace and the covenant of works or the term I prefer is the covenant of law. I get this from Romans chapter 6, verse 14, where Paul says of believers, you are not under law, but under grace. Those are the two covenants, law and grace. All men are either under the covenant of law or the covenant of grace. And at the head of those two covenants stand two men who serve as the representatives for their respective posterity their seed, their offspring, their descendants. Adam is the federal head and representative of the human race in the covenant of works. Jesus is the federal head and representative of God's elect, a new humanity in the covenant of grace. So in one sense, when the day of judgment happens, there are two men who will stand before the throne of God. Adam representing his seed. Christ representing his seed. Adam and his seed will be damned. Christ and His spiritual seed will be justified. This is taken from many, many passages of Scripture. Let me point you to a few of them. If you want, you can jot some of these down for future study. Turn with me to Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5. This is the heart passage, I think, on this teaching of federal headship. Paul has in the first four chapters given a masterful and logical presentation of his gospel message, the heart of which is the doctrine of justification by faith alone. That believers are made right with God, not by works, but by trusting in the finished work of Jesus Christ. Now in chapter 5, verse 12 and following, Paul expounds the basis of that justification. Namely, Union with Christ, who is our federal head and representative in the covenant of grace. Romans 5, starting in verse 12. Therefore, just as through one man sin entered into the world, 
and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. For until the law, sin was in the world. <coughs> sin is not imputed where there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam until Moses, even over those who had not sinned in the likeness of the offense of Adam, who is a type of him who was to come. Adam is a type of Christ. In some way, he was like Christ and pointed to Christ. Paul is comparing the two. Both men stood at the head of their respective posterity and their actions affected a lot of people. That's how they're alike. That's how they're similar. But then Paul goes on to contrast them. Adam's work affected his seed and brought damnation. Christ's work affects his seed and brings salvation. And now here's the contrast, starting in verse 16. Or sorry, verse 15. But the free gift is not like, notice the contrast there, the free gift is not like the transgression. For if by the transgression of the one the many died, much more to the grace of God, and the gift by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abound to the many. In other words, Christ's work is greater than Adam's work in efficacy. It is better because if Adam's one sin damned the human race, how much more effectual is Christ's work sufficient to save those for whom it was intended? It is greater in effect. Verse 16, The gift is not like that which came through the one who sinned. For on the one hand, the judgment arose from one transgression resulting in condemnation. But on the other hand, the free gift arose from many transgressions resulting in justification. In other words, Christ's work is greater also in extent. Adam's sin was one sin that damned the human race, but Christ's death takes care of not only that one sin, but all sins of all of His people for all time, resulting in complete, permanent, perfect justification. Verse 17, For if by the transgression of the one, death reigned through the one, much more those who receive the abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one, Jesus Christ. So then, as through one transgression, there resulted condemnation to all men. Notice that. How many transgressions did it take to damn the whole human race? One. Through one transgression, there resulted condemnation to all men. Adam's sin condemned the whole human race because his guilt is legally imputed to us, his corrupt nature is naturally transmitted to us, and therefore we are all guilty of sin, corrupted by sin, and condemned in sin from birth. That's the way you come into the world. And it's all because Adam represented us in the covenant of works. So then, as through one transgression there resulted condemnation to all men, even so, through one act of righteousness, there resulted justification of life to all men. Verse 19. For as through the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, even so, through the obedience of the one the many will be made righteous. Christ's work is greater in effect, it's greater in extent, and it's greater in result. Adam's sin resulted in death for the human race. Christ's righteousness results in eternal life for His redeemed elect. So Adam's one sin condemns the human race. Christ, after righteousness, saves God's people. As 1 Corinthians 15.22 puts it, 
in Adam all die, but in Christ all will be made alive. All of those who are in Adam and represented by Him in that covenant die in Him. That's the whole human race. Everyone who's in Christ, i.e. God's elect, and represented by Him, have life in Him. Eternal life. And the fact that Adam's representation of us comes in covenant before God is made plain by Hosea 6-7. So if you are writing down verses, you're going to want to write down Romans 5, 12 and following, 1 Corinthians 15-22, and now Hosea chapter 6, verse 7. Hosea 6-7 says, But like Adam, listen carefully, like Adam, they have transgressed the covenant. He is comparing Israel's covenant breaking with Adam's covenant breaking. What covenant did Adam break? It was none other than the covenant that God made with him in the Garden of Eden, recorded in Genesis chapter 2, verses 16 and 17, the covenant of works. So you can jot down Genesis 2, 16 and 17 as well. So as I said, theologians often refer to this as the covenant of works. Some call it the covenant of life. Others call it the Adamic administration. I prefer, as I said, the covenant of law, based on Romans 6.14. In this covenant, Adam represented the human race before God. The moral law of God was written in his heart as it is on the hearts of all men, Romans 2.14 and 15. He was also given a positive law, to not eat off the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And all of that is recorded in Genesis 2.16 and 17. That covenant, by the way, came with both promises and a warning. The explicit warning is death. Death. Genesis 2.17 says, For in the day you eat from it, you will surely die. And we know Adam did eat from the tree. He did violate the covenant. And not only did he die, but he brought death upon all of his posterity. The whole human race died. As we noted in 1 Corinthians 15.22, in Adam all die. All of his natural descendants, represented before him in covenant with God, died because of his disobedience. His covenant unfaithfulness. And if that's the case, if Adam represented us in covenant before God, then it makes sense that Christ, the second Adam, also represented us in covenant before God. That's why Hebrews 13.20 speaks of the blood of the eternal covenant. And that's the covenant that Paul's referring to here in our text. Back to Titus 1.2 now. This promise of eternal life that was made before the world began, that was made from before time eternal, it is the covenant of grace. The covenant that God made in eternity past within the council of the Trinity. We call it the covenant of grace because it's based upon grace, isn't it? The covenant of works is a covenant of effort. Adam's merit brought damnation. The covenant of grace is based upon unmerited favor. We receive His reward. Christ's reward. You can just see it now. God the Father in eternity says to God the Son, if you will go and assume their nature and suffer in their place 
and obey in their place, I will then give you this people and give eternal life to them in you. And then the son says to the father, Father, I will go. I will go. For their salvation, for your glory, I will go. He gives eternal life then predicated upon the obedience of the Son. So we are saved by works. You know that, right? Not our works, His work. Not our covenant faithfulness, His covenant faithfulness. Hebrews chapter 10 actually records the precise words of the Son. In Hebrews chapter 10, verses 8 and 9, quoting from Psalm 40 verse 7, it says there, After saying above, sacrifices and offerings and whole burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin you have not desired, nor have you taken pleasure in them, which are all offered according to the law. That's the Old Testament sacrifices which were not sufficient. Verse 9, Then He said, Behold, this is the Son speaking, Behold, I have come to do your will. It's the words of the Son. He says to the Father, Father, I've come to do your will. Verse 10 then adds, by this will, that is God's redemptive will in the covenant of grace, by this will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. God makes the promise of eternal life to Christ and to us in Christ representatively, covenantally. Jesus then came according to the will of His Father, laid down His life for His sheep, and purchased for us that eternal life. So Jesus says in John 6.37, all that the Father gives to me will come to me. This is effectual, efficacious. It accomplishes what it was purposed to accomplish. God gives a particular people to the Son. MacArthur says it's amazing that we are caught up in this eternal love relationship between the Father and the Son. If you're a Christian, you're a gift from God the Father to God the Son. And all whom the Father has chosen and gives to the Son will come to Him because Christ purchased that salvation for them. He says in verse 39 of John 6, This is the will of Him who sent me, that of all that He has given me, I lose nothing but raise it up on that last day. All of God's people given to Christ and the covenant of grace will be saved and raised on that last day. He promises eternal life. This is amazing, isn't it? He promised you eternal life from eternity. An eternal promise. And therefore, this promise, this hope, is absolute, certain, and sure. In John chapter 10, verses 27 through 28, Jesus said this, Very familiar to us. My sheep hear my voice. By the way, that does not mean God's going to speak to you audibly in your heart. That's not what Jesus is saying there. This is talking about the effectual call that comes through the gospel to the elect. My sheep hear my voice. Jesus just told the Pharisees, You do not believe because you are not my sheep. You don't become a sheep by believing. You believe because you are a sheep. Goats don't become sheep. My sheep hear My voice, and I know them, and they follow Me, and I give eternal life to them, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of My hand. We have an eternally secure salvation, an eternally secure hope, 
because we have an eternal promise of eternal life made from eternity. Sound good to you? I'll take that offer. I'll take that. What a hope. 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 9 says this, God has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to His own purpose and grace, which was granted us in Christ Jesus from when? All eternity, He says. All eternity. Ephesians 3.11 says that the Gospel is according to His purpose, His eternal purpose, which He carried out in Christ Jesus our Lord. The Gospel is God's eternal purpose. His eternal plan. His eternal covenant promise. That is our hope. This was Paul's message. The Gospel of Christ, the covenant of grace, the Word of God, and it must be our message as well. If you want to be an effective minister for the glory of Jesus, you must be committed to God's message. Well, there's a lot more that I'd like to say about that, but unfortunately, it'll have to wait until next time. Let's pray. Father, we thank You so much for this great promise. It is astounding that we who are so seemingly insignificant, not many of us were noble or mighty by the world's standards, and yet we are the very people who for Your own glory from all eternity You chose and gave to Your Son in a covenant of grace. And that covenant is made certain by the death of our Lord and His resurrection and our guaranteed future hope. Indeed, we sing, it is so sweet to trust in Jesus, just to take Him at His word to rest upon His promise. And that's what we do this morning. We rest on this certain promise that You've given to us from eternity. I pray that if there's anyone in here this morning that is not in Christ, he would come to see the reality of his hopelessness and that he would come to Christ. That You would draw all of Your people to Yourself for Your glory. And I pray that us who have come to know Him would rejoice in that hope. As we suffer throughout our life, as we go about the rest of our week, we know, Lord, there are difficulties that face us. We don't know what they are. You do in Your omniscience. But we know there are difficulties that face us, challenges that face us. And what is it that will give us courage to endure it all? It is this certain hope. So may we find courage in that hope to endure to the end. For Your glory we pray. Amen.